Section three of Grey's Anatomy, Part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie from Allegem. Anatomy of the Human Body, Part three, by Henry Grey. Development of the Vascular System, Part one. Blood vessels first make their appearance in several scattered vascular areas, which are developed simultaneously between the endoderm and the mesoderm of the yolk sac, it est, outside the body of the embryo. Here a new type of cell, the angioblast, or, or vasoformative cell, is differentiated from the mesoderm. These cells, as they divide, form small, dense, syncytial masses, which is soon joined with similar masses by means of fine processes to form plexuses. These plexuses increase both by division and growth of its cells, and by the addition of new angioblasts, which differentiate from the mesoderm. Within these solid plexuses, and also within the isolated masses of angioblasts, vacuoles appear through liquefaction of the central part of the syncytium into plasma. The lumen of the blood vessels, thus formed, is probably intracellular. The flattened cells at the periphery form the endothelium. The nucleated red blood corpuscles develop either from small masses of the original angioblast, left attached to the inner wall of the lumen, or directly from the flat endothelial cells. In either case, the syncytial mass, thus formed, projects from and is attached to the wall of the vessel. Such a mass is known as a blood island, and hemoglobin gradually accumulates within it. Later, the cells on the surface round up, giving the mass a mulberry-like appearance. Then the red blood cells break loose, and are carried away in the plasma. Such free blood cells continue to divide. The term blood island was originally used for the syncytial masses of androblasts found in the area vasculosa, but it is probably best to limit the term to the masses within the lumen from which the red blood cells arise, as Sabin has done. Blood islands have been seen in the area vasculosa, in the omphalosa mentoric vein and arteries, and in the dorsal aorta. The differentiation of angioblasts from the mesoderm occurs not only in the area vasculosa, but within the embryo, and probably most of the larger blood vessels are developed in situ in this manner. This process of the differentiation of angioblasts from the mesoderm probably ceases in different regions of the embryo at different periods, and after its cessation new vessels are formed, by sprouts from vessel already laid down in the form of capillary plexuses. The first rudiment of the heart appears as a pair of tubular vessels which are developed in the splanchnopla of the pericordial area. These are named the primitive aorta, and a direct continuity is soon established between them and the vessels of the yolk sac. Each receives anteriorly a vein, the vitalin vein, from the yolk sac, and is prolonged backward on the lateral aspect of the notochord under the name of the dorsal aorta. The dorsal aorta give branches to the yolk sac, 
and are continued backward through the body-stalk, as the umbilical arteries to the villi of the chorion. Eternet describes the circulation in an embryo, which he estimates to be about thirteen days old. The rudiment of the heart is situated immediately below the foregut, and consists of a short stem. It gives off two vessels, the primitive aortae, which run backward, one on either side of the notochord, and then pass into the body-stalk, along which they are carried to the chorion. From the chorionic villi, the blood is returned by a pair of umbilical veins, which unite in the body-stalk to form a single vessel, and subsequently encircle the mouth of the orc-sac, and open into the heart. At the junction of the orc-sac and body-stalk, each vein is joined by a branch from the vascular plexus of the orc-sac. From his observations, it seems that, in the human embryo, the chorionic circulation is established before that on the orc-sac. By the forward growth and flexure of the head, the pericordial area and the anterior portions of the primitive aorte are folded backward on the ventral aspect of the foregut, and the original relation of the somatopleur and splanchnopleur layers of the pericordial area is reversed. Each primitive aorta now consists of a ventral and a dorsal part connected anteriorly by an arch. These three parts are named respectively the anterior ventral aorta, the dorsal aorta, and the first cephalic arch. The vitelline veins, which enter the embryo through the anterior wall of the umbilical orifice, are now continuous with the posterior ends of the anterior ventral aorta. With the formation of the tail-fold, the posterior parts of the primitive aorta are carried forward in a ventral direction to form the posterior ventral aorta and primary caudal arches. In the pericardial region, the two primitive aorta grow together and fuse to form a single tubular heart, the posterior end of which receives the two vitalin veins, while from its interior end the two anterior ventral aorta emerge. The first cephalic arches pass through the mandibular arches, and behind them five additional pairs subsequently develop, so that altogether six pairs of aortic arches are formed. The fifth arches are very transitory vessels connecting the ventral aorta with the dorsal ends of the sixth arches. By the rhythmical contraction of the tubular heart, the blood is forced through the aorta and blood vessels of the vascular area, from which it is returned to the heart by the vitalin veins. This constitutes the vitalin circulation, and by means of it nutriment is absorbed from the org vitalis. The vitalin veins at first open separately into the posterior end of the tubular heart, but after a time their terminal portions fuse to form a single vessel. The vitalin veins ultimately drain the blood from the digestive tube and are modified to form the portal vein. This is caused by the growth of the liver, which interrupts their direct continuity with the heart, and the blood returned by them circulates through the liver before reaching the heart. With the atrophy of the orc sac, 
the vital in circulation diminishes and ultimately ceases, while an increasing amount of blood is carried through the umbilical arteries to the villi of the chorion. Subsequently, as a non-placental chorionic villi atrophy, their vessels disappear, and then the umbilical arteries convey the whole of their contents to the placenta, whence it is returned to the heart by the umbilical veins. In this manner the placental circulation is established, and by means of it nutritive materials are absorbed from, and waste products given up to the maternal blood. The umbilical veins, like the vitalin, undergo interruption in the developing liver, and the blood returned by them passes through this organ before reaching the heart. Ultimately, the right umbilical vein shrivels up and disappears. During the occurrence of these changes, great alterations take place in the primitive heart and blood vessels. Further Development of the Heart Between the endothelian lining and the outer wall of the heart, there exists for a time an intricate trabecular network of mesodermal tissue from which, at a later stage, the musculi papillaris, chordae tanninii, and trabeculi are developed. The simple tubular heart, already described, becomes elongated and bends on itself so as to form an S-shaped loop, the interior part bending to the right and the posterior part to the left. The intermediate portion arches transversely from left to right, and then turns sharply forward into the interior part of the loop. Slight contractions make their appearance in the tube, and divide it from behind forward into five parts, viz. 1. The sinus venosus, 2. The primitive atrium, 3. The primitive ventricle, 4. The bulbous cordis, and 5. The truncus arteriosus. The constriction between the atrium and ventricle constitutes the arterial canal and indicates the site of the future atrioventricular valves. The sinus venosus is at first situated in the septum transversum, a layer of mesoderm in which the liver and the central tendon of the diaphragm are developed, behind the primitive atrium and is formed by the union of the vitalin veins. The veins or ducts of Cavier, from the body of the embryo and the umbilical veins from the placenta, subsequently open into it. The sinus is at first transversely, and opens by median aperture into the primitive atrium. Soon, however, it assumes an oblique position, and becomes crescentic in form. Its right half or horn increases more rapidly than the left, and the opening into the atrium now communicates with the right portion of the atrial cavity. The right horn and transverse portion of the sinus ultimately become incorporated with and form a part of the adult right atrium, the line of union between it and the auricular being indicated in the interior of the atrium by a vertical crest the crista terminalis of his. The left horn, which ultimately receives only the left duct of Cuvier, persists as the coronary sinus. The vitalin and umbilical veins are soon replaced by a single vessel, the inferior vena cava, and the three veins, 
Ephira vena cava and right and left cuvierian ducts open into the dorsal aspect of the atrium by a common slit-like aperture the upper part of this aperture represents the opening of the permanent superior vena cava the lower that of the inferior vena cava and the intermediate part the orifice of the coronary sinus the slit-like aperture lies obliquely and is guarded by two halves the right and left venous valves above the opening these unite with each other and are continuous with the fold named the septum sperium below the opening they fuse to form a triangular thickening the spina vestibuli the right venous valve is retained a small septum the sinus septum grows from the posterior ball of the sinus venosus diffused with the valve and divided into two parts an upper the valve of the inferior vena cava and a lower the valve of the coronary sinus the extreme upper portion of the right venous valve together with the septum sperium form the crista terminalis already mentioned the upper and middle thirds of the left venous valve disappear the lower third is continued into the spina vestibuli and later fuses with the septum secundum of the atria and takes part in the formation of the limbus fossae of valis the atrial canal is at first a short straight tube connecting the atrial with the ventricular portion of the heart but its growth is relatively slow and it becomes overlapped by the atria and ventricles so that its position on the surface of the heart is indicated only by an annular constriction its lumen is reduced to a transverse slit and two thickenings appear one on its dorsal and another on its ventral wall or endocardial cushions as they are termed project into the canal and meeting in the middle line unite to form the septum intermedium which divides the canal into two channels the future right and left atrioventricular orifices the primitive atrium grows rapidly and partially encircles the bulbous cordis the groove against which the bulbous cordis lies is the first indication of a division into right and left atria the cavity of the primitive atrium becomes subdivided into right and left chambers by a septum the septum primum which grows downward into the cavity for a time the atria communicate with each other by an opening the ostium primum of born below the free margin of the septum this opening is closed by the union of the septum primum with the septum intermedium and the communication between the atria is re-established through an opening which is developed in the upper part of the septum primum this opening is known as a foramen ovale ostium secundum of born and persists until birth a second septum the septum secundum semilunar in shape grows downward from the upper wall of the atrium immediately to the right of the primary septum and foramen ovale shortly after birth it fuses with the primary septum and by this means the foramen ovale is closed but sometimes the fusion is incomplete and the upper part of the foramen remains patent the limbus fossae of valis denotes the free margin of the septum secundum issuing from each lung 
is a pair of pulmonary veins. Each pair unites to form a single vessel, and these, in turn, join in a common trunk, which opens into the left atrium. Subsequently, the common trunk and the two vessels forming it expand and form the vestibule, or greater part of the atrium, the expansion reaching as far as the openings of the four vessels, so that in the adult all four veins open separately into the left atrium. The primitive ventricle becomes divided by septum, the septum inferiors, or ventricular septum, which grows upward from the lower part of the ventricle, its position being indicated on the surface of the heart by a furrow. Its dorsal part increases more rapidly than its ventral portion, and fuses with the dorsal part of the septum intermedium. For a time an interventricular foramen exists above its ventral portion, but this foramen is ultimately closed by the fusion of the aortic septum with the ventricular septum. When the heart assumes its S-shaped form, the bulbous cordis lies ventral to and in front of the primitive ventricle. The adjacent walls of the bulbous cordis and ventricle approximate, fuse, and finally disappear, and the bulbous cordis now communicates freely with the right ventricle, while the junction of the bulbous with the truncus arteriosus is brought directly ventral to and applied to the atrial canal. By the upgrowth of the ventricular septum, the bulbous cordis is in great measure separated from the left ventricle, but remains an integral part of the right ventricle, of which it forms the infundibulum. The truncus arteriosus and bulbous cordis are divided by the aortic septum. This makes its appearance in three portions. 1. Two distal ridge-like thickenings project into the lumen of the tube. These increase in size, and ultimately meet and fuse to form a septum, which takes a spiral course toward the proximal end of the truncus arteriosus. It divides the distal part of the truncus into two vessels, the aorta and pulmonary artery, which lie side by side above, but near the heart. The pulmonary artery is in front of the aorta. 2. Four endocardial cushions appear in the proximal part of the truncus arteriosus in the region of the future semilunar valves. The manner in which these are related to the aortic septum is described below. 3. Two endocardial thickenings, anterior and posterior, develop in the bulbous cordis and unite to form a short septum. This joins above with the aortic septum and below with the ventricular septum. The septum grows down into the ventricle as an oblique partition, which ultimately blends with the ventricular septum in such a way as to bring the bulbous cordis into communication with the pulmonary artery and through the latter with the sixth pair of aortic arches, while the left ventricle is brought into continuity with the aorta, which communicates with the remaining aortic arches. End of section 3